many of you were in that church? Go ahead, raise your hands. So we got a little sprinkling of them. We're there, and then um, we were. Then we called it, renamed it New Hope, and we're here. For, then, then the Lord sent us downtown, and um, so. But that the original group sent some uh, uh, little package of information to Glenn, and uh, I was stirred up in California, and we actually uh, there were two places that uh, were invitations to go, and Heather said, "Honey, go ahead and take my." Uh, you know, some uh, free, I, this marry me, fly free. She was flying for American Airlines at the time. So I went and came out here and the uh, Holy Spirit moved and said, this is the place you're supposed to come. And Glenn, the moment I got out here, this man who was the supervisor of the Southeast District made me the superintendent of West Virginia. And I said, hold on a minute. I've never even pastored yet. <laughs> and he said, it's, it's where you came from. You came from under Jack Hayford. And so there was that sense of, we're going to put you here and, and do this because of where you and Heather have come from. And, and uh, he initiated Heather's uh, being licensed. He's done nothing but good to our family for a long, long, long time. And I want you to, and now these last 10 years, right? So you've been, the, has it been 10, 11 years, been the president of Foursquare. And now that transition is coming where Randy Remington is stepping in. And this, we all... Uh, really bear witness to all the wise choices that he has made and it's because partly in part it's because Glenn had the foresight to see that this is a runway that somebody needs to be mentored into and so that was all planned and he's taken uh, Randy under his wing for quite a while now and uh, raising him up so we have so much in this wonderful man of God you have no idea the, 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 the levels of blessing and things have come through his life so we're so happy you're here today. <laughs> Thank you so much. What a, what a treat it is to be with you. I leaned over to Debbie during worship and I said, you know I've said this before, that if I were 30 years younger and starting a church, I would, uh, Roger and Heather would be my first hires. Uh, to lead worship and to lead with the pastoral heart that they do. Thank you guys for saying yes to Jesus, not saying yes to me. Because the joy of saying yes to men quickly evaporate in the heat of life. But when you say yes to Jesus, you can actually go in the furnace of fire and know that the fourth man is with you, Amen. the Son of Man, who may not keep you from the fire, but will keep you from being burned and will cause your witness to change the King's word. So you have persevered. You have been faithful. Um, and there's going to be a, a great reward for you in heaven. I always think about getting to heaven. The Bible says... Whatever you've done that hasn't been under his name, it'll kind of burn up. So I kind of got a feeling that when they call Debbie and I forward, they're going to call Debbie and they're going to bring out all this gold and silver. And when they call me, they're going to light a match and it's all going to go up. That's kind of what I think once in a while. But uh, this, this, I think, will be my last Sunday service as the formal president of Foursquare. 
So I need, do you record the service? I need to get a recording of the song. Of course, the whole service would be great. Good. Because that was very special. Thank you, Roger. And it even meant more for you to say that God touched you when you were at the altar. That's very, very special. Um, yeah, I, I wish I could just take an hour because that's I'm not here to do what I'm going to tell you, but I, I wish I could just take you through the journey Debbie and I have been through. Because when you hear our journey, you will see the hand of God. You will see... <laughs> I've got a sermon, though, I've got to preach, so I'm going to tell you a couple quick ones, but I was with um, Manuel Noriega, who is a famous dictator of Panama, um, our four-square leader in Panama. She's a woman. She pastors a church of several thousand people at the University of Panama in Panama City. She called me once, and she said, would you like to meet Manuel Noriega? And I said, that all depends. She said, well, he's in prison. And I said, it still all depends. She said, well, I'm going to write the government and see if you can get in with me. I've been his pastor for seven years. He's a Christian. He gave his heart to Jesus in a Florida uh, prison when three pastors began to come see him once a month. He gave his heart to Jesus. He was a notorious dictator in Panama. Many people died at his hands. Many people are missing because of his, uh, in fact, our U.S. Army Rangers went down and um, arrested him, and he took sanctuary in a church. I don't know if you guys know that, but when they went down to get him, Manuel Noriega took sanctuary in a church, so they couldn't go in the church, so they piped in music. My thinking is they piped in country western music. I don't know. I could be wrong. However, I did meet one of the rangers who was with there. I mean, who was a part of the arrest. So she, she called me. She said, hey, I just got a letter from the government. They're going to let you go with me. Uh, she said, I've never been able to get anybody else in. So would you like to come down and preach for me? And we'll go after church. So I went after church, went by this fruit market, bought him some nuts and fruit. And I thought, this is surreal. I'm buying pecans for Manuel Noriega and oranges. So we went to visit his in his room. He um, shared with me his story, his conversion. And when I left, I said, Manuel, can I pray for you? And he said, yeah. And um, he said, pray I'll get out of prison. And I'm going, oh, great. <laughs> the one time I get to pray for somebody really famous, and they asked me to pray for something impossible. So I grabbed his hand and I said, Manuel, I, mean, I said, Lord, um, this is your servant. Um, you know his life. He was facing um, brain surgery for a, a cancer tumor. He wanted to spend some time with his family. And I said, I, I, don't, I don't know everything, Jesus. I don't know what you're working, but you said we could ask you. So I, I want you to hear this man's heart. So I left posted a picture on Facebook, and that was on a Sunday. The next Saturday, a friend of mine called me, Doug Anderson, who is Pastor Jack's son-in-law. He said, Glenn, I'm in Panama City. I said, oh, great, Doug. He said, I read your Facebook post. I said, that's awesome. He said, I'm standing outside of the prison where, where Noriega is. I said, great. He said, no, you don't understand. There's three TV trucks here. They're letting him out. 
Six days after we prayed, they let the most famous dictator in Central America, Manuel Noriega, out of prison. They sent him home. He spent three months with his family, first time in 27 years. He went in for brain surgery and never came out and went home. I'm just telling you, that's, that's the journey of all of our lives, that we just walk in obedience to Jesus. We fail. He picks us up. We make mistakes. We get into impossible situations, and, and he rescues us. You, you, sang a, you sang a song about him rescuing us. Um, Lauren Daigle said, I would send an army into the night to rescue you. And I think unless we get to that deep concept and believe that, that God is for us, not against us. Everything in the world has been designed in the fallenness of man to undermine God's sovereign purposes for you. So while there is God's plan, there is Satan's plan. The very first conflict in all of the universe was over authority. And God kicked Lucifer out. And we've been wrestling with that idea of power and authority and who it goes to. And I think about um, that the first thing Jesus was asked to do with his authority. Don't ever forget this. Was to do something for himself. When Satan showed up in the wilderness and he said to Jesus, turn that stone into bread. I know you're hungry. It's been 40 days. Jesus said, I will not. The first thing Jesus did with his power was turn water into wine because in his idea, the idea of empowerment and authority and power is to bless other people, not to enrich yourself. I think that's an incredible model for us today. That he taught us that power and authority is to be given away, not to be conceited, not to be, um, you know, people, people tend to take authority and, and want to be less accountable and to compile it. But Jesus said, it's in giving away. It's in dying that you live. And so what I, what I want to talk to you for the next 30, 40 minutes is um, the most important model in your life has to be Jesus. He's the most important lesson. Not what you read on the newspaper, not what you listen to on, on um, any news outlet, not what you read on Facebook, but the most important model you can find, someone who has set your life in order is Jesus Christ, and he was God become flesh. God wanted us to learn what his love was about. He wanted to see that ultimately love was about sacrifice. And uh, I'm still amazed at the, the uh, Jesus Christ superstar. Um, I know that when I 
that came out, I think, when I was in high school, and a lot of church Christians were upset at it because it was a little rocky. And, and, uh, but I can never forget the song that Mary Magdalene sung. I don't know why he loves me. I've been able to use men all my life, but he has some power over me. And that's just, that's, that's the legacy he left, that he never left people where he found them. Amen. So he encounters a woman who's been divorced five times and living with someone, and her life gets radically changed. That's the premise of our time together this morning, because if you know Jesus, you know life. Uh, I was... Um, in an airplane um, and happened to get bumped up to first class. I've never booked first class in the United States. I've always booked domestic, but because I fly 200,000 miles a year, I get um, upgraded some. And so I happened to be in first class and Pat Boone walked in. Now, some of you younger people might not know who Pat Boone is, but he sold more records in the 60s than anybody but Elvis. And he's had several movies, and I think he sold 60 million albums or records or something like that. So he walks in, he walks down the aisle, and he looks at me, and he says, Hi, Glenn. And I'm thinking, Pat remembers me. Pat Boone was in Church on the Way, and uh, Jack had introduced me several times to Pat. So he says, Hi, Glenn, how are you doing? I was kind of flabbergasted that he knew me, but I didn't stand up and ask him for a selfie or anything. I just let, He sat down behind me. So we had a short flight. I think we were flying from Las Vegas. Uh, by the way, I was there on church business, so I just wanted to make sure. Um, we flew into L.A. We got up, and as we were walking out, he tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, Glenn, I called Shirley. Now, she just died about two years ago, I think. He said, I called Shirley before I took off. And I said, you don't have to worry about this flight. Glenn Burris is on this flight. <laughs> and I thought, what a great compliment, Pat. That's very nice of you. Have you ever heard of the term hot mess? Yeah. Let, me tell you, let me tell you what the current definition of the word hot mess is. It's not the etymology of it, but the current definition of hot mess, you'll love this, an attractive disaster. <laughs> now think about that with me. An attractive disaster. Now that's not the etymology of it. The etymology is it referred to a mess that was literally hot. Mess in this case being related to the kind served in a mess hall. Before it was anything else, mess is a word for a quality of food that was hot. When we find someone in a mess, either they've created or has happened to them, maybe we should start by being a student before we become a critic. I want to read you a, um, by the word, do we have, do you know if we have the PowerPoint? The word restored. It um, shows up, I think, 126 times in the Bible. I'll end, Roger, remind me if I forget, I'm going to end with a scripture out of Isaiah that actually commissions us to be restorers. We begin by understanding that he is a restorer, God is a restorer, but Isaiah, the prophet, said God would raise up a remnant of people who would repair the brokenness, the breaches, and restore um, it's, just, it's a powerful verse because it is a prophetic word to you today. You have been called to be a restorer. 
a repairer of foundations. So I start with this story, but I, I just, I want you to kind of, I want you to just let this story, it's, it's the story you saw, Rick Warren stole my message this morning on the children's video, but it's a great story about Jesus coming to Capernaum, and I want to read it to you because there's some words in there that if you're like me, you never stopped to think about. I think they're incredibly important. The Bible says words are life and death. And sometimes they will turn your perspective. They will allow you to pivot, to see something that if it gets seated in your heart, the enemy can't ever steal it. I've had words. When I was 36 years old, I was on an operating table in Charlotte, North Carolina uh, from a trauma surgery where I lost nine units of blood. Um, a young surgeon, 42 years old, saved my life. He'd never met me. Uh, all he knew was he had a young man that was throwing up blood, uh, losing, um, losing control. I, I was under convulsions. They put me asleep. They started prepping me for surgery. I quit breathing. He cut me open, and blood just went everywhere. And he discovered that I had an uh, um, ulcer on the back wall of my stomach that had severed an artery in my stomach, and I was bleeding to death. I went five minutes without breathing. He estimated and he would fix that. He had to remove a third of my stomach. I'd been having back pain for two years. Nobody could find it. The last guy, an orthopedic surgeon, said, you need to see a psychiatrist. There's nothing physically wrong with you. Two weeks after that, uh, I started throwing up blood at a church conference in Charlotte um, that um, uh, Elmer Towns was teaching at, co-founder of Liberty University. And uh, Elmer and I still laugh about that, by the way. He's like 90 years old. And so the first time I saw Elmer, like, was 20 years after that happened. I said, hey, do you remember when the guy started throwing up blood in one of your conferences and had to get rushed to the hospital? He said, yeah. I said, I'm that guy. He said, I thought you died. <laughs> I said, no, Elmer, I'm still alive. I'm still here. But I almost died. Um, the orthopedic surgeon later would come in, in my ICU unit and apologize to me. But... But I, life is, hear this, life is in the blood. And so um, as you read this, I want you, to, I want you to capture something of the life of God as he's dispensing it in a story that we've heard uh, a hundred times. So Mark chapter 2 a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, this is a city on the Mediterranean, the people heard that he had come home. Now, it's interesting because not many people reference Jesus living in Capernaum, but apparently he had a home there for a while. Maybe while they were traveling, they, the disciples shared a place. I know he spent a lot of time in Bethany with Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came. Say that phrase with me. Some men came. See, it's interesting, on, that, on the video, I, I wouldn't challenge the video, but it said some friends brought him. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that the people who brought the man were his friends. It just said some men come. Isn't that interesting? That's the description of the people who brought the, the paralyzed man. Some men came. Didn't say family, didn't say friends, it just said some men. 
What I want you to see this morning is a man who has obvious damage in his life. He can't walk. Has damage you can't see. That Jesus was getting ready to heal as well. Most of us would come away from that story thinking that he healed his ability to walk. And I would say to you today, Jesus did much more than that. Just walk with me through the story and see if you don't see a God who restores. See, Jesus saw more than a man who couldn't walk. People today get PTSD for a lot of different reasons. They live in abusive relationships. Um, They've been to war. It's the first time in the 60s where we um, doctors um, came up with the definition of PTSD, post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, and said people can leave a point of conflict and the time they spent in that conflict still affects them, though none of that threat exists today. Isn't that interesting? You can be so wounded by something in life that the effects of that brokenness can affect you the rest of your life. Post-traumatic stress disorder. So some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man and carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, See, I don't think it's wrong to focus a, a, a whole sermon on seeing their faith. I think that's fine. But I think we miss some subtleties that show us a much big picture of God. Because if your sermon is only about your faith and not about God's abilities and God's insightful understanding, he's all knowledge, he's all powerful. We have, I think, in America, given way too much emphasis on our part. And when we can't do our part, we feel helpless. But the truth of the matter is, no matter what the extenuating circumstances are, nothing changes about what he can do. What's changed about this current situation is what's available to us. What we can do, what we can't do. And that throws people into a disorder that minimizes, in my opinion, the sovereignty of God. It was at the edge of the Red Sea where Israel turned to Moses and said, so you brought us out here to die. Their um, options were running out. They couldn't take their children into the water. And guess who's popped up on their rearview mirror? Pharaoh. Their worst nightmare. We were slaves back there, but at least we had a roof over our heads. Now, they had forgotten that God's feeding them every day through manna. He's not letting their shoes wear out. I mean, you think about all the amazing things. So 
Moses turns to God and God says, what do you have in your hand? I have a stick. Lift it up. He lifts it up. The water parts. They go through on dry ground. Get on the other side. The, the water actually destroys Pharaoh. So imagine. Imagine being at the edge of your worst nightmare. And on the other side of your nightmare, God takes care of your worst fear. Wow. Can we see beyond that? Can we see a God who sees beyond our worst nightmare and possibly could be leading us into a season where our worst fears are forever vanquished? Now, they sing a song on the other side, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown through sea. Roger, I'm sure you've led that song. I don't think that's the song they sang on the other side of the Red Sea. I think they were whining on the other side of the Red Sea. I mean, they were moaning and groaning. But look at this. Look at this. Uh, when Jesus saw their faith, which I think is fine. I just, I just think if we emphasize too much our faith, I'm not, I don't want to minimize it. I just don't want to put it above what is your faith in. This is another word I want you to focus on. Son, your sins are forgiven. Say that phrase with me. Son, your sins are forgiven. Did you know I didn't? It's the only time Jesus ever called somebody a son. The only time in Scripture Jesus referred to somebody as son. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of the Scripture, but I, I will tell you to remember what Jesus said to him when he says, take up your bed, or take up your mat, and go where? Home. I can't prove any of this, but I just, I'm going to tell you about the God that I know who probably sees a man whose family has lost their ability to continue to care for him. They just have reached their end. They didn't bring him. I think Jesus is saying, I'm calling you son because I'm not sure you've heard that in a long, long time. And in one discourse with this man, Jesus understood that he wasn't just physically broken, he was emotionally broken. His relationships, even his friends, even, I mean, maybe these men were hired to come and bring him down. I don't know, but it didn't say his friends. It just said some men. But he said to him, I want you to go back home. I want you to go back to the very place that for whatever reason has become a place of great pain for you. And I don't blame whoever is at home. I don't blame the parents. I, I mean, we all have limits. We have limitations. But here's a man who couldn't do anything for himself. But Jesus recognizes in him there are things that if he doesn't restore, that even if he can walk again, Jesus just takes care of all of it. I'm going to give you a testimony. So this is what I understand about God. That He restores us relationally. He, he said to us, 
Hey, if you want, you go around calling yourself my disciple. You, you can't do that unless you love each other. I mean, Jesus sets the bar pretty high for all of us. You're going to be mad at each other and not be in a relationship with each other. Then don't call yourself my follower. Don't call yourself my disciple. Because part of what goes with the package of my kingdom is that you love each other. Doesn't mean you agree with each other. Doesn't mean you even like each other at times. But it means you're committed to love each other. Bob Goff said, every unselfish act of love whispers God's name. Every. When you've done it unto the least of them. Rick Warren, um, we were on a Zoom call recently, and first of all, Rick said, hey, Glenn, there's about nine there, uh, nine men uh, on this call. Um, We were talking about racial tension, and um, one of them was Chris Hodges, who heads up uh, the great church in Birmingham that has about 60,000 people in it. I think there's over 120,000 now connected with Saddleback. And Rick said, hey, Glenn, I think I, I think I remember you promising me to come to work for me after you retired. So he said, I'm, I'm expecting a letter or a call or something. And, but Rick said, you know, in Orange County, during the middle of the COVID crisis, they closed 130 food pantries. And Saddleback has opened 160 food pantries. Isn't that amazing? Some people saw it as an end. Other people saw it as a beginning. Some people saw it as an opportunity. Some people saw it as an obstacle. This ends where other people saw it as the beginning. Relational restoration. I I was on an airplane from Chicago to Rhinelander, Wisconsin. You're not going to go to Rhinelander unless you really plan to go there. And... um, Especially in the winter, because it is it is terrible. I almost got arrested there one time. I was I was um, well, actually I did get detained. I was preaching to pastors in a conference, and two policemen walked in. They walked right to the podium where I was teaching. They said, "Your name, Lynn Burst," and I said, "Yes." And they took me off. I mean, this is no kidding. In the middle of a pastors' conference, they came to the pulpit, asked me if my name was Glenn Burst, and took me off. They took me into a room. I was fortunate enough to get the assistant pastor to come with me because I, I didn't know what was happening. And, and they said, um, they started asking some questions, and I was thinking, do they have bad news that they're going to give me? Now, that kind of went away quickly when they say, where did you spend the night last night? Now, I don't know about you, but that's a little unsettling. <laughs> I said, well, I was at a certain hotel, and they said... Did you turn a jacket into the dry cleaners this morning? Now, how many would think all of that's kind of strange questioning? And I said, yes. And they said, well, they found something in your pocket, and we're here to question you about it. They pulled out two cellophane bags with white powder in it. And they said, is this yours? And I said, yes, it is. They said, well, we've tested it for cocaine. We know it's not cocaine. Is it an amphetamine? I wanted to laugh because I knew it was aspirin. It was a goodie powder in one of those little cellophane bags. Um, but they were, they were way too serious for me to laugh at that point. And they both had guns. So 
So I said, no, it's an aspirin from North Carolina. It's called Goody Powders, and I've got some in my uh, briefcase in the room. They escorted me back in the room with all of these pastors. I grabbed my briefcase, and we walked back out. So they finally looked at the box. They saw there were some other aspirin powders in there, and they go, well, we believe you. And I said, wait a minute. How did you know where I was? The hotel didn't know who I am, where I'm at. They said, oh, we put your name out on the radio this morning, and a sergeant called in. He said, yeah, I know where that guy's at. He spoke at my church yesterday, and he's probably there today. So I just want you to know, God knows where you're at, and so do the police know where you're at. So I was traveling back to, to, to Rhinelander, um, and uh, it's a famous story. They, they love when I come back there and, and get to tell the story. The guy who arrested me, by the way, or not arrested me, but told him where I was, is now the chief of police there in Rhinelander. So I, I was in on one of the little commuter planes. I was in the front seat. There's only 12 seats. You ever been in those planes where everybody's in first class? Okay. So uh, there was a guy who came in, must have been about 40 years old, this happened about two years ago, sat down beside me, and he was drunk. I mean, he was bad drunk. And um, so he sat down, and the, and the flight attendant came on, and she said, well, this is such a short flight, we'll not be serving drinks today. And inside of me, I was going, good, because he doesn't need anything else to drink. Um, and he, he was obnoxious, he was rude. Um, and, and he pulled out his phone, and he said, after we introduced ourselves, he said, Glenn, I want to show you some of my girlfriends. Well, I mean, what do you do? Right? I mean, he's a big strapping guy, and he's drunk too, by the way. So he goes, this is my Italian girlfriend. And then he went on, and he said, oh, and I meet them all at a bar in New Jersey. He said, there's 10 girls to every man. If you give me your phone number, I'll give you my phone number. If you're ever in New Jersey, you call me up, and I'll take you to that bar. I pulled out my phone. I pulled up a picture of me and Debbie, and I said, this is my wife. We've been married 43 years. And I said, um, I love her. And he, he grabbed my phone. He goes, man, she's cute. Could I have her phone number? <laughs> I don't make this stuff up, people. And I, I was infuriated. But I didn't say anything. I laughed, and... You're not her type anyway. Before we landed, um, he said, this is the worst day of my life. I said, oh, really? I wanted to say, it's come pretty close to being one of them. <laughs> not too high on my list either, but he said, uh, I got a call at 7 o'clock this morning. My father, who's only 62 years old, died. So you see, I would have been about his father's age, maybe a year or two older. He said, we were not on good terms. I left Rhinelander. I divorced my wife. I left my kid, and I, I'm, I left a bad story. I don't even own a home. I work for a power company under contract, and we go all over the United States. He died this morning, and I'm going back to bury him. I moved from an offended husband to a compassionate shepherd. And I began to talk to him about just what he would face at the funeral home. And, what he, and he finally turned to me and he said, what do you do for a living? <laughs> I said, well, I'm a pastor. And he, um, 
we had, I mean, it wasn't a very long flight, but we had some pretty interesting conversations. And when we left, his phone rang, and he picked up the phone, and he's standing right in front of me. We're walking off the airplane. He said, yeah, it's been the worst day of my life. But I sat beside a pastor on the flight from Chicago. And for the first time in a long time, I have hope. You see, I don't think that any one of us go anywhere. We don't do anything that isn't a part of a larger master plan. Think about this. Where God the restorer is restoring relationships. Second, Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven. So not only is God committed to restoring us relationally, he's committed to restoring us spiritually. We were dead in our sins. There's not any worse sinners. That's why grace is so important. The law only shows us how bad we are, but the truth of the matter is every time I see a sin in someone else, I have to realize that sin, but for the grace of God, there there go I. So this spiritual restoration Matt Chandler said it like this, without a heart transformed by the grace of Christ, we, are, we just continue to manage external and internal darkness. It's what many of the people around you are doing. They're just managing the darkness. They're just surviving. They're treading water. Debbie and I lived in California for 14 years, and we had probably the worst neighbor in 45 years of marriage we've ever had. She lived right in front of us. They had a club on our street called um, Don't Talk to This Woman. I mean, that was the organizing principle of the club. Debbie loved her. She took walks with her. Uh, Her husband had a massive heart attack. We took them food, looked after their house. So one day, um, I was walking out to get our mail, and she saw me. She said, Glenn, did you park in front of my house last night? And it's the first time she's ever said anything to me negative and and I said yeah I said we had some friends over and I just didn't get it in last night weren't any neighborhood restrictions she said don't ever park your car in front of my house again I went got my keys went came out got my car pulled into my driveway I'm telling you within one minute I was so mad we are the only people on this street that even speak to you We helped you when your husband had a massive heart attack. My wife walks with you weekly. That's the way you would return our kindness? So I walked in my house. I was walking through our kitchen. I wanted to find Debbie because I told her, we're joining the club. (laughs) We're done. I'm done with this woman. And God stopped me in my kitchen. This is no kidding. I mean, I've had some divine encounters in my life, but this one was so real. And God said, what are you getting ready to do? I said, I'm getting ready to... Tell my wife we're going to have nothing to do with it. He said, no. I said, well, you got mad at some angels and kicked them out of heaven. (laughs) I thought, Roger, I had a pretty good argument. He goes, no, your heart isn't wired that way. I want you to go find your wife, and I want you to pray for them. So I found Debbie. I told her what happened. told her about my own personal battle. And I said, we're supposed to pray for him. And I said, I, I'm not praying for him. You can pray for him. <laughs> so she prayed for him. And I think I might have said amen. I don't know when she was finished. 
That afternoon, I got an email from Michelle who apologized for what she had said to me earlier. I'm not sure the woman's ever apologized in her life. Six months later, her husband got a job out of town, and they moved, and she left us a letter, and this is what she said. We've been watching your life for four years, and we wanted you to be the first to know. We've decided to follow the God that you serve. God is a restorer of spiritual things. He knows that people are lost. We judge people much too quickly when God just said, hey, you want to read about my son? Read about what they wrote about him. He sat with sinners. That's what it said about Jesus. He sat with sinners. It didn't say, Roger, he sinned with sinners. It said he sat with sinners. And he was called a friend of sinners. How do you think all of those people, you think they're going to build a bridge to you? You think they're going to build a bridge to a self-righteous church? Or you think they might respond to a church that walks in humility and kindness and graciousness? One, one scripture said, your kindness led me to repent. The spiritual restoration that needs to happen in our world is not going to happen with an angry church. It's going to happen with a broken, loving, caring church. One of the greatest attributes, in my opinion, of a follower of Christ is when someone can do nothing for you you still are committed to doing everything for them. Relational restoration, spiritual restoration, and lastly, physical restoration. I I love this quote. Our prayers may be awkward, our attempts may be feeble, but since the power of prayer is in the one who hears it, not in the one who prays it, or the one who says it. That's powerful. The miracle isn't going to become because of the person who said it, but because of the person who hears it. Our prayers do make a difference. Say that with me. Our prayers do make a difference. Several years ago, I was in Cambodia, and I started throwing up blood again. By the way, I've been on my deathbed four times. All been because of bleeding ulcers. So I was in Cambodia, it's the middle of the night. I hadn't been feeling well. I, I remember sitting through a sermon, and it's the first time I can remember feeling like this in a sermon. I just was sitting there going, Would you just finish? <laughs> I was just tired. I was not feeling very well. And he kept going on and on and on. And inside of me, I was just saying, Would you just finish? 
So I woke up in the middle of the night and I threw up blood and I was in the bathroom and I turned on the cold water and I started throwing on my face because what happened in Charlotte at age 36 was that I passed out. If people hadn't found me, I'd been dead. So I knew no one would, would even check on me till mid-morning. So I threw water on my face and tried to call the front desk. They didn't understand any English. Tried to call my friends over in a hotel. Phone wouldn't work. Finally called Debbie because I, I didn't want to call her because I'm in uh, a country that you just don't want to get sick in. I mean, it, their medical care is just not uh, up to par. So she got a hold of missionaries. They came to, um, they came to my room. Uh, I called my doctor in North Carolina, uh, my personal doctor. He and his wife and two children came to Jesus on Easter Sunday when we were pastoring, and that's been 30 years ago, and we're still best of friends. And I called him, and the first thing he says was, don't let them do anything to you in Cambodia. I'm going to work with your team, and we're going to air vac you out of Cambodia to Thailand, which um, has one of the best hospitals in the world, Bumrungrad. So uh, Ted Olbrook comes in my room. He brings a, a Cambodian doctor, young doctor, who works with the orphans. We have 110 orphanages in Cambodia. We've gone from one church to thousands of churches in Cambodia by rescuing one kid at a time. It's just a a marvelous spiritual story. The whole country is being restored in a country that was broken because of the Khmer Rouge. Many of these kids have no parents, no grandparents. It's, It's very, very sad. Killed millions. A genocide. So Ted Olbert comes to my, he says, uh, this guy's going to start an IV. So he starts an IV and um, he said, we need to get to the emergency room. I know they're working on a transport for you, but we need to just get you to the hospital if we can. I said, okay. So they got me to the hospital and Ted would later tell you, do you know who the guy, do you know who the doctor was that waited on you? He said, no. He said, he said it was our first orphan rescued. Wow. Four square rescued an orphan wow. who's now saving the president's <laughs> life. So I'm sitting on a bed, and um, a little lady comes in. She's about four foot ten, and she said something in Cambodian to our missionary. And he said to me, "She wants to pray for you." And have you ever been in the hospital and somebody come pray for you? Sure. I mean, I'm come pray for me. So she comes over. She lays her hands on my stomach. She prays maybe thirty seconds to a minute. Didn't know anything she said. She walks out the door, said something to our missionary, and left. I said, "What did she say?" He said, "She wants you to know you'll be fine." I'm going, okay. He, he said, no, 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 you don't understand. This woman prays for people and they raise from the dead. This woman prays for people and their ears are open. This woman prays for people and their eyes are open. This woman prays for people and demons flee. When this woman says you're going to be fine, you're going to be fine. I'm going, boy, I'm sure glad she didn't go out the door going... <laughs> Nothing I can do. Nothing Jesus is, nothing Jesus is going to do either. So they flew me to uh, Thailand. I mean, I was in my, I was in the intensive care unit. There were nine people around me within ten minutes, and two doctors that came in and they said we're going to do an endoscopy early in the morning, which they did. And they came back and they said the ulcer stopped bleeding on its own. We don't have to do anything. Enjoy your stay here. When you get back home, 
uh, we want you to have another endoscopy. And um, so I did. And when I had the second endoscopy, the doctor said, I can't find where the ulcer was. Hey, I just told you about a miracle. God, God just didn't do surgery through a physician, which I would take too, but he did a miracle through the prayer of a humbled woman. By the way, my 11-day stay in Thailand was $4,000. Just crazy medical differences in costs. Physical restoration. God responds to the prayers of people who pray in His name. I want to close today. Um, Jesus prayed for a young man who was delivered of demons. Remember that story? He was in this cemetery and cut himself and nobody could keep him chained. He delivered the man of the demons and the Bible says, which is interesting, he was dressed and in his right mind and the people were afraid. They had become more comfortable with dysfunction than they were under wholeness. And they basically asked Jesus to leave, which he did. And this is what I'm wrapping up with today, because Jesus left. The young man who owed him so much said, can I come with you? Jesus said, no, stay and tell your story. Roger, for all these years, 40 years of my ministry, I thought that was the end of that story. I really did. And I've, I've been preaching all my life. But several chapters later in Mark, after Jesus has walked on water, after John the Baptist has died, after Jesus has fed thousands, he comes back to that same place. Now, remember when he left, the crowd said to him, what? Leave us. This time when he returns, they greet him by the thousands. And they say, would you pray for us? Would you teach us the ways of the kingdom? The difference between the early part of Mark and the end part of Mark was one man who knew their language and knew their culture, who Jesus empowered to be the restorer, to be the repairer, to be the rebuilder. All I'm saying is we need Jesus' power, but he sent us by the power of the Spirit. He said something when he finished his ministry that no one could understand at this point. I mean, as they're looking at the temple on the mount, and today you go to Jerusalem and they're still wailing at the western wall because the temple is destroyed. And yet Jesus said to them 2,000 years ago, one greater than the temple is among you. He not only said that, he said, you are now the temple. I'm sending the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. So wherever you go, there goes the presence of God. It's no longer about a place. It's about a person. But see, what I love, Rogers, if you look at the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, it's showing up all the time. We, people just didn't get it. Isaiah would say, he declared that a remnant, Isaiah declared that a remnant would become known as the rebuilders of houses left in ruins, restorers of the streets where people live, and repairers of those things breached and 
broken. That's the God we serve. That's the ministry you have. All the things that you've heard me to say, I've just been at times an instrument, not even knowing what I was doing. But even my own healing came because someone else became an instrument of God's healing. When, when you remember this story again about the paralyzed man let down and Jesus heals him, I don't want you just to remember about a guy who got his legs healed. I want you to remember about a man that Jesus saw was broken on the inside. God cared about his relationships. God cared about his spiritual condition. He said to him, your sins are forgiven. Let's, let's just take care of that before anything else. Let's, let's, let's say this is not even connected, but if you think it is connected, it's not an issue anymore. Your sins are forgiven. I mean, Jesus was, I think Roger used these words, pushing the reset button on this man's life. And that's what God has asked you to do. Go push the reset button on people's lives. Just isn't a collective thing that God's pushing. I mean, God is pushing a reset button on the church, but who is the church? It's not an institution. It's not an organization. It's you. Go push. You, are, you have been commissioned by the Lord to go push the reset button for people. Touch them in a way that their life will never be the same. And it may take months of doing something in Jesus' name before they ever realize it. In fact, you may never know it in your lifetime. You, Roger said it when he's saying, go so, Roger, that, that's been such a part of my life. Thank you for saying that. A lot of people focus on the harvest. I just focus my life on planting seeds. Because I don't know, I don't know when they'll come up. I don't know if they'll come up in my lifetime. And I finish with this, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and I've taken four extra minutes. This will take you, this will take you one more. But let me tell you, let me tell you this. If you've ever thought that God may not hear or know what your deepest pain is, and you don't even see it rescued in your lifetime. There's a woman named Leah, who the Bible said was unloved, and God knew that she was unloved. Her father Laban tricked Jacob into marrying her when he was in love with Rachel. She was the proverbial beautiful daughter, and Leah was at least not um, easily marketable. Can you imagine what that must be like in life to know that your husband didn't marry you because he wanted to? Think about that. Think about the brokenness of that. But God gave her some kids, and this is what I want you to remember. Because she cried out to the Lord. And all you need to remember today is that God gave her a son named Judah. And later, Matthew would record this beautiful name in the lineage of Jesus. Not Sarah's sons, but Leah's sons. And she would have never known that in her lifetime, that God would honor her faithfulness of walking before him. But I declare that to you today, that if you'll sow good seed and good soil, God will bring an increase. Jesus, thank you for this 
Wonderful congregation. Thank you for our friendship with Roger and Heather over these years. They are so incredibly special to us, as is this church that in a small way you used us to help open the door. But Lord, we didn't do any of the work. We just were obedient at a time, Lord, when you asked us to walk through a door that you had opened. You opened doors and you closed them. So it is to you today that we give all glory, all honor, and all praise. May this church see its greatest days in the future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Don't, don't move. Come on up, Debbie. Um, I want everybody to extend your right hand of blessing. I think this is amazing that this is your last service as our denominational president. I'm so, I've, I just, that moves me that this is an honor for us. And so we're going to come as representatives of all of Foursquare. As we extend our hands, so let's just praise the Lord for a minute. Just go ahead and praise the Lord for their gift of this, this couple, this gift of their life. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. The word sustainer comes to my heart. That the Lord has been your sustainer. That he has sustained his message through your life and that he has he will now sustain the release of the fruitfulness of every seed that you have sown I was kneeling down there I didn't know this was your heart the Lord showed me that you it was all about sowing and so I come to affirm from the spirit of the Lord upon your there is the hand of the Lord's upon you the hand of the Lord is upon you, and he's going to cause, you're going to continue sowing. There's no question about that. It's always going to be that way. Let's pray in the Spirit, guys. Just pray in tongues here. The Lord's going to fill you up. He's going to fill you up in a new way, a new capacity. There's a new filling coming to your life. A new filling. You have run the race and emptied yourself. You emptied yourself. But the Lord's going to fill you up in a way that for this next season of your life, there's a fullness that the Lord has promised to fill you up with. He's going to fill you with a fullness that causes you to go into this next season steady, certain, blessing. There are many men and women of the Lord that the grace of God has, uh, through your life, there's been a touch. There's a, a touch and uh, you have sown faithfully in people. And there's something that the Lord is saying to my heart about them being raised up now. There's a release of things that, that are uh, a new a new wave literally of of those that you've poured into that they're rising up generations of blessing so lord we thank you for this season we don't know everything is going to happen but we do thank you lord for your your promise to cause harvest to come forth we pray father for this next season that they be that's the hand of the lord rest upon them will see clearly all the things that you have set before them the joys the challenges all the things but they will walk from victory to victory from strength to strength from grace to grace in jesus name amen hallelujah
Praise the Lord.